We're happy to make podcasts available for selected ed webinars for your listening pleasure. If you'd like to receive a CE certificate, you must watch the video recording. Recordings and quizzes can be found in the EdWebinar archives. Please visit home.edweb.net slash podcasts for more information. Welcome and thank you for joining us for the second EdWebinar in our two-part series on teaching and learning from the student's perspective. Penguin Random House Education and Alliant International University have collaborated to bring authors and educational leaders together, offering experience, guidance, and resources to educators. Our goal today is to provide insightful perspectives on teaching and learning, fostering diversity, empowering students to leverage their strengths, and promoting understanding, celebration, community, and active engagement in the learning process. Both uh, Simran and Javier have been kind enough to uh, entertain the educator in me by allowing us to introduce ourselves alphabetically by last name. My name is Tatiana Rivadeneira, and I am, to, I am the program director for the teacher education program at Alliant International University. And today I will be the moderator and also a participant in today's series. Semaron, I hand the introduction baton off to you. Thank you, Tatiana. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Simran. I'm uh, based in New York City. Uh, I'm an educator and a scholar, a historian by training, uh, and, uh, and a writer. Uh, and I work at a think tank called the Aspen Institute, where I lead a program uh, that focuses on how do we bring people together along the lines of religious difference, which um, is a real challenge right now. So uh, grateful to be in that work and to be here with you all today. Uh, over to you, Javier. Hi, um, it's an honor to be here. Uh, my name is Javier Zamora, and I was born in 1990 in El Salvador, and I immigrated here when I was nine years old. Um, and I've been um, an educator from as early as second grade and all the way up to college, but right now I just write, and I'm currently in Tucson, Arizona. Excellent, thank you for those introductions. So in our conversation, there will be four themes that we'll be talking about today. And I will be asking both Samron and Javier just some questions to really get us to think about what it is to teach and learn through the lens of our students. And so let's begin with our first theme, gentlemen, stories behind the writing. So Samron and Javier, today we are gathered for you to share your life's journeys, which resonate with us in numerous ways. As we reflect on journeys, we often envision them as epic and emotional experiences. We're eager to hear about the psychological, emotional, spiritual, coming of age, and educational facets of your lives that have influenced your writing. So Simran, if you don't mind, I'd like to begin with you. Can you please briefly delve into how these aspects shaped your writing and continue to be a part of your ongoing journey today? Yeah, I appreciate that. You know, so much of uh, who I am today, I think, is shaped by uh, my childhood and, and growing up in this in this country. Um, I was born and raised in Texas, in, in San Antonio. And at the time, my brothers and me were the only uh, kids in all of South Texas who wore turbans. And, and because of our visible appearance, uh, because we looked so different from the people around us, uh, we had constant uh, questions from people about who we were, uh, what we were about, why we looked different, what food we were eating. I mean, all, all sorts of questions in ways that are probably familiar to many of you. And um, and, and a lot of the challenges, I mean, I'll tell you, some of the challenges we faced were um, 
direct, explicit racism, uh, intense bigotry. Uh, but a lot of the challenges we faced had to do with, with just general ignorance. It wasn't people being malicious or hateful or nasty. It was just they were interested and curious. And, and I remember as a kid, my brothers and me would just talk and, and, and just sort of imagine what life would be like if people knew who we were. If, if they just knew a little bit about our culture, our heritage, and we started to understand uh, the role that ignorance plays uh, in bigotry uh, and, in, and in human hatreds. And, and for me, that was very much the, um, the starting point of my journey into education. You know, if, if, if ignorance is uh, part of the problem, and it's not the entire problem, right? I understand there's deeper institutional and systemic issues now, but if, in, if racism is born at least in part out of ignorance, then education can be part of the solution. And so that was very much my, um, my initial entry point into this world. And I, I share this epigraph uh, at the beginning of my book from, from James Baldwin that, that very much informs my theory of change um, and my, my approach to education. Uh, he says, if I love you, I have to make you conscious of the things you don't see. And that line uh, really transformed my approach uh, not just education, but actually in terms of how I try and carry myself in this world, uh, recognizing that actually, A, education is an act of love, and it's something that shows up in all sorts of spaces beyond the classroom. Um, and so it's, it's sort of expanded my understanding of what education could be uh, and who I could be and actually how writing uh, could be a genre uh, and, a, and a vehicle uh, for humanizing people through storytelling. And, and that's the sort of the last touch point I wanted to offer here, uh, which is the um, my, my understanding that's sort of evolved over the years is that actually uh, the most powerful way uh, to bring humanity back into a world that's very inhumane uh, is through personal storytelling. And so that's what I've really started to devote my work towards in, in my writing. That's amazing. Thank you for sharing. And Javier, how about for you? Can you please delve briefly into what has shaped your writing and what continues to be a part of your journey today? You know, um, I think kind of to like what Simran was saying, that for me, I think I was, because I came here as a nine-year-old kid, there was a lot of also ignorance that I had of what that actually meant. You know, I, I got here and I had no understanding of the legal system uh, uh, in this country. I had no idea what immigration was going to be like and that I was this thing that is called an undocumented immigrant. And so a lot of my journey being a student and eventually a writer is me attempting to understand the why. You know, why am I in this country? Why did my parents leave my country and leave me? um for this place that to me was supposed to be like the world in the movies and the world of full house and baywatch and then when you finally get here i felt like i was tricked and lied to um and so it, this is these are ways that perhaps as educators that also the teachers didn't really also understand what their student was going through uh, we're talking about 1999 up until 2008 when I was from fourth grade to eighth, uh, 12th grade. And this was a world in which 
people didn't even know the term undocumented yet. I didn't know the term. And because of teacher ignorance and my own, I felt like I couldn't share the secrets that I was being told not to share by this government and also by my parents. And so I felt alone. Um, I felt like I was the only one carrying this deep, dark secret. And when I and when you don't tell um, your teachers or anybody what you're going through, it turns into shame. So that has been, uh, I guess, my journey in writing. That the more that I've written, the less shame I feel. But not only that, um, I have mm. to also say that writing doesn't fix everything. And that therapy alongside writing has also helped me do away with the shame of being uh, or and having been an undocumented immigrant. This is great. So, so much like our students in Simran, there are students that we can visually see their differences. And so writing about observing those differences has helped. And then Javier, when we see students, it's the differences we don't see, right? And writing... So it's allowing us to see both our students. Those are excellent. Thank you so much for sharing how you each arrived to your, to your writing. I wanna talk about compelling stories in the next part. Um, you both have shared compelling stories about overcoming challenges. And so Javier, if you don't mind, I'd like to start with you. Your account of surviving seven weeks, a seven week journey to America at the age of nine in the summer of 99. And as you stated, without your parents, that is just, Remarkable. You describe moments when you question if you had finally reached La USA. Can you tell us more about how you felt in those moments? What were you taking in? What did you feel? As a nine-year-old? Um, you know, for me, La USA, La USA, this country, um, was the thing that took my parents away. Mm. You know, my, my dad left when I was one in 1991. My mom left in 1995. And so in the world of a five-year-old, six-year-old, eventually a nine-year-old, um, this country had to be the best country in the world by definition because my parents chose the country over me. Yeah. And because it was better than me, the first instance of crossing the border, and at the time, um, there was there was nothing uh, separating the Sonoran Desert as there should be uh, the Mexican side and the U.S. side. There was no demarcation. And once the people told me that we were in the United States, it was the same thing. I think that was like my first instance of what a border was. The landscape was the exact same. What differentiates Mexico uh, from, you know, the United States? So I was confused. And I think in the book, I also say, I thought that the United States, I don't know, my idea went to the Coca-Cola polar bear, polar bear commercials. So I was like, why isn't there snow on the United States side? And why isn't the air cleaner, et cetera? And sadly, after my my first 24 hours in this country, eventually I got detained. So I think that's a metaphor for my first 24 hours in the United States 
what I thought was the greatest country in the world. Now I'm in jail um, as a nine-year-old with all these adults. And I think that has really stayed with me and has really marked my existence of being a Salvadoran in the United States. Wow. And so you experienced this unexpected twist. You had this idea, right, of what it would be when you came, and then this unexpected twist happened. And so how did you push through sort of taking your ideas and your assumptions and seeing how you had to learn through understanding that though you had these ideas of the United States, this was going to be home. You were going to have to learn. It took me, I want to say decades uh, yeah, to really yeah. uh, understand that word home. But outside of that, I think what's rarely talked about, you know, there's a lot of immigrant children, a lot of students. Yeah. There's a huge amount of depression that happens once you make it here. Because we've been taught from being from the global south that this country is going to fix everything. And that all you needed to do was risk your life in order to be reunited with your parents. And now everything's going to be a Disney movie ending. But the realities are completely the opposite. You know, I didn't know my dad. He was a stranger. I had to, like, really learn to trust him and to accept him as a father figure. And I was fortunate enough that he wanted to be a father figure. Mm -hmm. You know, and I'm, the, I'm one of the lucky ones. My mom, I recognize, but, you know, like I talk about in the book, there was a lot of things in her uh, mental health aspect that hadn't changed from El Salvador to this country. And also, um, I rarely got to spend any time with my parents because they would work two, two jobs. And so imagine being a kid who came to this country unaccompanied. And then there were nights where I have to be by myself and make myself dinner. So I was triggered because I wasn't with the people that I was told I was always going to be with. So it's like these ideas of, Again, this sentiment of being tricked and like, this is not what it, it has been sold to me. On the other, on the contrary, we're like right here and we're experiencing um, depression. Uh, we're experiencing uh, like a huge low point after being, having experienced an, an extreme high of crossing the border. And right. so this is what a lot of the children are, are, are going through. And I'm thinking as educator, as an educator, it's these unspoken challenges that oftentimes, you know, get in the way of our students learning paths. And so as educators, we have to take into that consideration that a lot of our children are coming with these experiences and making sure that we allow for those moments when they have that pause in that learning, right, to be able to say, okay, these are my ideas, these are my assumptions, and here's the evidence that I have or don't have, because we want to confirm that for the learning is what we want to do. That's great. Thank you for sharing that. Simran, if I may, your description of a specific experience during your school days growing up, Sikh, is quite poignant. The instance where other students from your town in Texas discuss the sheet on your head highlights personal challenges and broader issues that students may face in a diverse academic environment. Could you elaborate on how you navigated such moments? 
Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, if, if you've read the book, you know, there, there are a lot of such moments and, and many more that I didn't share. And I, I think in, in some ways, um, what I was really trying to do in terms of highlighting these experiences was uh, to do what I said James Baldwin offers, right? Like to help people see what they don't otherwise and as, as an act of love uh, and also as a way of, of um, fostering empathy so that people can understand what life is like uh, in my skin or in my shoes. Um, and what, what I also, you know, find to be very particular about my experience um, is also in many ways so universal. Uh, all of us have the experience of being uh, stereotyped or judged uh, based on all kinds of assumptions that people make, whether it's, you know, what they see uh, based on how we look um, or where we come from or, uh, you know, what kind of car we drive. I mean, there, there's so much that we're constantly judging one another for. And I think one of the um, takeaways that many marginalized people uh, sort of develop early on, and it's something that I really uh, try and highlight in my book, and, and, and one that I think sort of speaks to these mental health challenges that Javier is raising, is that um, for people who come from more vulnerable backgrounds, uh, we have to learn early uh, that we can't tie our happiness to other people's assumptions. And that's a really hard thing, especially in today's world where we're living in a comparison culture and where everything is aspirational in terms of what we see on Instagram and TikTok and so on, right? Like our students are constantly uh, disappointed by their own lives because they're wondering why they don't have what other people have. And I think, you know, one of, one of the, um, I guess you could call it a, a method or a strategy uh, that I developed more, more out of um, survival than anything else was, you know, you're, you're walking down the street and people think you're a terrorist and people think you're their enemy or, or whatever assumption they have about me. And like, am I really going to live every day being angry and bitter about what people assume about me? I mean, there was a period in my life where I was and I was, I found myself in fights and arguments and, and all kinds of things. And I started to realize that I, di I didn't want to live that way, that, you know, it's easy to live that way, but it's not, it's not what I want. It's not what any of us want. And that we actually have a choice uh, to move beyond that. And part of that choice is to recognize that actually our happiness comes from inside of us. Uh, it's developing that confidence that, you know what, there, there might be a degree to which it matters what other people think, uh, but we don't have to tie, you know, our expectations to their expectations or tie our happiness to their assumptions or, or whatever it is that we're constantly doing that ends up in frustration. And so that to me became um, like a, like a salvation uh, from the racism, right? Like it's not that people stopped being nasty towards me or making assumptions about me, but I had a way to deal with it that, that ended up in each situation, making me feel like, okay, this is their problem. It's not my problem. There's nothing wrong with me in terms of how I'm living in this world. And so those are the types of experiences that I think need to resonate with us as educators, right? When we're thinking about designing learning opportunities, it's sort of like instead of just rushing to the next chapter, the next section, it's really about criti thinking critically. I think it's about asking questions, right, Saran? I mean, you say you explained and you had to find ways in which to sort of think, for, think within your construct. I'm okay. It's this person, Right. But even as educators, we still need to make sure that we pause and take the time and ask questions. 
you know, think about how did our students react in a lesson because they're giving us so much information. And when we do that, the more questions we ask, the more we can plan to reach all of our students in, in a class. I do, I do have one more question. Even though you would step back and you, and you had to for yourself say, okay, it's not me, it's them. Was there ever a time where you're like, how more can I explain myself? Because you still had to think of the person receiving the information. You're still trying to get the word out there. How did you okay. go about to, how did you, right? So how did you go about to say, let me, let me try again? Because you don't give up. You don't. Totally. I mean, this, this is the, the, the fine balance, right? Like yeah. the, the, the beginning of this um, conversation, I, I was talking about how education is my theory of change. Right. And and how you can really um, transform people uh, through awareness. And, and so much of our own suffering comes from what we don't know about the world. And of, of course, um, there is also the, the strategy of saying, well, who cares what other people think? Like, who cares about other people? I'm just here to take care of myself. And that is that is a tactic that I think is very viable. Uh, in in a racist society, or in a society, or in a context where you are marginalized for whatever reason, and I think that the the question for me then between those two approaches is, well, how do you reduce suffering, not just for yourself but for people in the long run, right? Like, I, it is easy to ignore, and I'll give you a very specific example of of how this changed for me. Um, I was eighteen when the terrorist attacks of nine eleven happened. And up until that point in my life, I had very much taken the approach that my parents taught me, um, you know, focus on whatever it is that you need to focus on. And, and, I, and I absolutely took that approach. And then 9-11 happened. And my people in my community and anyone who looked like they might have been uh, America's enemy was being targeted, assaulted, attacked. And, and I started to realize, you know what, if I continue to turn the other cheek, then my family's at risk. People I care about could be killed. And, and they were. And so recognizing that there is an obligation or an opportunity, I mean, you can think about it either way, but to be proactive in, in addressing uh, these biases so that they, so that we can start resolving them for future generations. I mean, I, I think that's, that's part of the balance here, right? Like figure out a way that you can um, be proud and confident of who you are uh, in the face of bigotry, but then also commit to addressing those issues going forward. And I think that to me is, it's, it's a two-step process. Both have to happen simultaneously. Right, right. I always tell educators what we fail to articulate will often become the arguments why something did not work. It wasn't understood. Mm -hmm. Got to no. have that. Thank you so much. So let's go back. We're going to reflect on some school years. We're going to go back a little bit. Thinking about specific moments or experiences that were particularly formative or transformative for you. Samaran, I'm gonna continue with you. So in navigating such moments as comments and discussions about your dark skin, long hair, and turban, what strategies and or coping skills or mechanisms did you develop to maintain a positive mindset despite facing challenges related to your cultural identity? Yeah, you know, there, there are a handful, and, and I've shared a couple already. One is um, to understand that people's um, 
ugliness towards you based on your identity is it's the ugliness in, in their heart. It's, it's nothing to do with you. Uh, and to not take it so personally, even though it might feel personal. I think that's, that's an approach that served me very well. Um, another one that, that I'll offer, and it's one that, um, that I sort of, sort of started touching on, um, but it's one that, that probably is um, something that I go to often, uh, daily, I would say, and that's a practice of gratitude. And, and I think the, the, the reason that I, that I go to gratitude is because um, in our lives, it's so easy to become narrowly focused on the challenges, uh, to become tunnel-minded, to feel like the world is out to get us, or to, or to feel like everything's wrong. And I think in a context like today, where there is a lot that's upsetting and frustrating and makes us angry, um, it's so easy to feel that way. And, and gratitude, I found, is, is a practice that, is, uh, that enables us to help find perspective, to, to maintain humility, and ultimately to develop more compassion and empathy. Uh, so gratitude to me has become a, a bomb, a, a salve, uh, in a context where we often feel bombarded with, with negativity uh, and we often lose perspective. I mean, I'll say, especially these last two weeks, I've personally felt... Um, overwhelmed, disappointed, frustrated. I mean, just like all of us and, and gratitude has been the place that I've gone to, to just, and, and it, I, I don't mean it as a, uh, a sugar coating or pretending like bad stuff isn't happening. Of course it is. Uh, but a way to put into perspective that, you know, all people aren't terrible to each other and, and there are, um, good things out there about life and about our own lives, um, that we should appreciate as well. And I think that practice uh, in the face of difficulty, any kind of adversity uh, is a real, um, it's a really powerful way to maintain health and well-being, um, to maintain balance, to maintain faith and hope and optimism, even while recognizing uh, the challenges in the world around us and in our own lives too. Right. And, and you're, you, you speaking of this is reminding me how as educators, you know, we are oftentimes we're teachers of content and teachers of students. Right. So many times our students come to us and they may have gone about solving something differently. And we can either be that teacher that says, that's not how I showed you. Go do it again. Or we can be a teacher of content and allow them to explain how they got there. Right. And what this does, is it allows the students to relate their experiences in that learning opportunity. But at the same time that that's happening, we're also becoming a, a teacher of students and we're allowing their diverse narratives and we're fostering a sense of belonging for them. Right. And so when I think of that, it's 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 you created these strategies. We can also help develop those strategies so that when they take it on to real life, they have those experiences. That's great. Thank you for sharing. Javier. So. I'm also quite familiar with Nogales, Arizona, the town on the Arizona-Mexico border. I want to go back to once in La USA, California, how did you handle interactions with peers and educators who might not have fully comprehended your journey? I mean, whose biggest journey was a trip that they chose to take. How did you connect to your peers and educators? I wish a Simran was in my life back then because I, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't react that way. You know, for some reason, and I'm very grateful, 
um, and I've unpacked this in therapy that education and being good at academics became a coping mechanism. And so I'm very fortunate that, you know, once the hormones kicked in, because I was behaviorally great in fourth and fifth grade, but by sixth grade, the hormones were there and I was just very angry. I was an angry student and my teachers didn't know how to explain it because I was getting, you know, a three, eight, three, nine. But in California, we do like a U for unsatisfactory and S for satisfactory. Yes. Uh, and you have to be an S or above in order to make honor roll. So I never made honor roll because of my behavior. Um, so that's how I dealt with it. I've been known to throw water bottles at my teachers. I always spoke out. I wanted, I think in hindsight, I wanted somebody to really ask me and sit me down and be like, hey, what's going on? You know, and to be, and to, and this is the hardest thing to recognize what I was hiding. Um, because even if they asked, I didn't feel comfortable sharing with them my immigration status. And by seventh grade, I lost my thick accent. And so I could really blend in. So I would lie to people and tell them that I was born in the United States. Um, so nobody knew. And I even had to go to therapy. Um, but even to the therapist in seventh grade, I never disclosed that I was an immigrant, which all the adults probably knew, but they didn't know how to ask me the right way um, for me to get me to be comfortable enough. And I think, um, you know, the when I think it took until high school and it took an English teacher um, in order to really ask, you know, why are you always late to class or what is going on? Can you write about what does home mean to you? I think that was the assignment. And that was the first time after being with this teacher for six months that I was like, okay, I think this teacher can really handle what I'm about to disclose. Um, and from then on, uh, that's what it was. And to follow, to follow on what Simran was saying, um, for me, a coping mechanism, I think everybody reacts to trauma differently. But for me, there always needs to be a physical aspect. And it became um, sport. Like through soccer, I got to emote yeah. a correct way or in a healthier way. And eventually also hiking. Um, you know, back then as a Latino, hiking was like this thing that only white people could do. Um, but it slowly, I like made hiking about me and also um, coping the right way. You know, instead of like throwing stuff at my teachers, I could, you know, go on a hike. So it's so interesting you said about your English teacher, um, because in that moment, they considered the, written, the richness of a possible background or an experience, right? And so it's almost as if your teacher in that moment stopped to think and say, you know, in their lesson, at what point were the students most engaged? They found a way to reach you for you to be engaged in that moment. But then if we think about it, there's also probably lessons where you were not engaged, you were distant. What was happening in there? And also too, as educators, we also wanna make sure to look back and say, what surprises in that lesson? It's amazing to me how many times our students can guide us in the learning opportunities. And so, uh, that, yeah, I totally hear that. And by the way, I 100% get understand, lose the accent. 
right? Mm-hmm. Especially as you start to come into young adulthood, um, you become very shy, very away, right away. Yeah. Gentlemen, I'd like I to end the, with go yeah, ahead. Just go to ahead. follow up on that, I think um, as teachers, mm. there's a lot of trust building that needs yes. to happen. And, it, and, it, and it's not about one lesson. I think from the very first lesson, the very first day of school, you are engaged. And it, I think it's your responsibility to make the classroom a safe space. And another uh, and to build trust with your students in order for them to open up. So like I said, like this teacher had showed me for six months uh, that she could handle this by the point, by the time that this lesson came around. Yeah. Yeah. And you will forever remember her. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So let's end this part of our uh, webinar with a final thoughts. And Javier, I'm going to stay with you on this one. You mentioned that writing helped you heal. In your view, how can literature bridge students' lived experience and their learning? I think representation. Um, you know, when I sadly, when I was in high school, a poetry book written by a Salvadoran published in the United States was not something that existed. Um, and in particularly, even up until 2022, a memoir written by a Salvadoran immigrant did not exist. Mm-hmm. And I think um, these are the ways that literature, literal books can and should be taking up space in libraries and bookstores. And sadly, for me, a book like that didn't exist. Um, and so as, a, as an educator, it is your duty to really, um, and if you can't afford with the budget, to really line, you know, your classroom walls with different representations and identities that reflect your student. Like really do the research. So the student doesn't have to read it, but I think freedom is when the student can decide not to read it, if that makes sense. You know, choice is the right and choice is the power. So the power doesn't, when, if a book doesn't exist and that book is not put in front of your face, you don't have the option of denying it. And that's what I didn't have. But now students have that option. If they're from a Salvador or like have gone through something very similar to mine, I don't expect them to read it, but I want them to have the choice to not read it. I love it. It's about exposure. It's about the idea of seeing yourself. I don't know about you two gentlemen, but I certainly never saw a teacher that looked like me growing up. And so the idea of ever going into education was so far from my reality. So it's about exposure. I like that. Mm-hmm. So Simran, what message about differences? This was very. This was a very common theme in your book. Do you hope readers will take most away? What do you What do you hope for that? Um, <laughs> there's a lot, but if if I had to say one thing, it would be this. Um, that the way that we have learned to understand difference um, in in our society today uh, is on the basis of fear. Uh, We see people out of 
competition. We see difference as something that threatens us. And there are many traditions and ways of looking at the world uh, where that's not the case. And, and we have alternative models for how we can approach difference. And one of them, and, and, and the one that I subscribe to and think is uh, really actually quite beautiful um, and simple is to see difference as, as a manifestation of oneness. So instead of starting from a place of seeing people's difference and saying, we, are, we, have, we don't have anything in common with one another because you're this way and I'm this way, uh, and that leads to further division and polarization, to start from a place of connectedness and to say, we, are, we, we share this human spirit, um, we belong to one another, and then we can start looking at our differences as something we can celebrate rather than something we feel threatened by. And it's, it's, just, a, it's just a simple change in approach, right? And, and I think ultimately we all believe this, uh, but if we can just sort of flip the coin uh, from the starting point and say, we, we start from connection, uh, we care for one another, we belong to one another, uh, we have compassion for one another, and actually, we love each other's differences. I mean, it's it's just a, such a radically different way of living in the world. And so, I think that that to me is is the upshot, the promise of what this approach has to offer. Right. That's a, that's a huge paradigm shift too, especially when it seems more so now than perhaps before. There's an over labeling of ourselves. Right. I remember when it was just I'm Tatiana, and now it's oh. What's your background? What's your ethnicity? What's your, and it's like, I, I was like, I was just, I, I was just wanting to share the table with you. And so, <laughs> but gentlemen, thank you so much. This does conclude the part of our conversation and on to the most exciting part, which I know you two absolutely like. It's the question and answer part of our webinar. But before we go into the answer question part, Ladies and gentlemen, those of you that, that are in the audience, please make sure you stay tuned after the question and answer um, because we've got a couple little surprises for you. And so with that, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to scroll up here and see if I can get the first question. Um, the first question is going to go to you both. It says, what resources and communities did the presenters find to support their journey to wellness? Javier, do you want to take that one first? Um, I think free healthcare at the institutions that I work <laughs> with. Um, but I, I have to say, you know, I talk about therapy a lot, and I mm. and I and I've you know rewatching a lot of these presentations. I don't think I do a good enough job to tell people that this, you know, the therapist that finally changed my life is my fourteenth or thirteenth therapist so it's not like one person is gonna fix everything and it has been a struggle you know my first therapist I have to go um, and, and, and meet with them in seventh grade um, and I think that also formed this relationship with therapy that it was punishment and culturally speaking like Latinos were not when we don't believe in therapy both my mom and my dad uh, don't um, and my dad still doesn't my mom finally changed um, and so I think it's just this constant, and the older that I got, the more people were talking about it. Um, and I think now therapy is just out in the open and I think it, as it should be. And the more that my friends began to spoke about mental health and like what even that was and coping mechanisms, I think this is changing our society for the better. 
So I think it's a gradual thing that occurred. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Simmer? Yeah, I'll offer um, two things that, that have been really um, valuable for me. And, 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 and I'm trying to think of um, beyond what is sort of the obvious, like, there's always like the answer that's at the tip of your tongue. Um, and then there's, I, I'm trying to be a little bit more thoughtful about um, maybe unexpected communities or maybe expected. But the, the first really um, is, um, as I was growing up, and I write about this a lot in my book, it was actually my uh, teachers and my classmates and my classmates' parents uh, who were often the ones um, who were my community. I mean, I, kind of like Javier, I grew up in a, in a context where there really wasn't anyone like me and they didn't know what my life was like and it was really easy to feel isolated. Um, and, and there wasn't anyone I could turn to aside from my family and say, hey, I know you get what I get. Like, I, I know you're feeling what I'm feeling. Um, and so to have um, an experience growing up in Texas of, of authentic allyship and solidarity uh, was really was really special to me. And it, it wasn't everybody. Um, but when it happened, I, I started to build trust with those people and say, okay, you you get it and you have my back and you're here for me. And that's, you know, I could name names from teachers from elementary school to high school. I could tell you soccer coaches. I could tell you teammates. Those things stick. Um, and so that was a community that was really, uh, that's something that I, you know, 30 years later still really cherish. Um, the other the other answer to that question, and, and it's it's something that I continue to, um, to explore in my own journey, um, is uh, looking at philosophical and spiritual traditions uh, from around the world. And, you know, that is uh, a place I find myself going um, when I'm looking for answers to challenges in our society that we don't seem to be able to figure out. Uh, and often uh, I find that actually um, there are different ways of looking at things. And so I think just expanding my horizons beyond what is Eurocentric or American centric um, and thinking about um, other other ways of, of living, um, not all of which I agree with, but sometimes you find uh, nuggets or ideas or gems uh, that can shift your perspective. And so that's that's also been a source for me and a resource for me over the years. This next question asks about what was the most helpful thing that a teacher or teachers did to support you? Samron, would you like to start with that one? Oh, I have, I have so many. I mean, I'll tell you the, <laughs> the, the, most, the most obvious one to me, the one that comes to mind immediately um, was in a, in a moment uh, that I also write about in the book, that a, a fifth grade teacher, um, we had gone to a roller skating rink. Uh, the manager was refusing to let us skate uh, because of our turbans. Um, and we tried to reason with him and, and he wasn't interested in, in our reasons. Um, and, and my mom and this teacher convened the parents and agreed to do a, a walkout together with, with all the classmates. And we were, I mean, we were kids. Um, and this was the end of year party. The teacher had, I'm sure, put a bunch of planning into it. Um, and, you know, every all, all the kids, you look forward to the end of the year party. It was, it was a big deal. Um, and for her to um, to adapt in that moment and to really show people what it looked like, 
not just to show up for one another, but but really like to um, to to demonstrate what what priorities are, what values are, and how to live into them in, a, in an uncertain moment. Um, it's something that really it mattered to me, but I also know it mattered to my classmates because again, they were understanding something that they weren't going through personally, but they were learning how to show up in those moments. And so uh, that is a moment that, that, that I, that I've remembered very fondly. It means a lot to me. Miss mm. Lamb was her name. L-A-M-B. <laughs> you got the spelling down. All right, Javier, can't go back to your English teacher. Another <laughs> teacher or teachers. Uh, two instances too. Um, and both say the same thing. Um, mm. When I, just made it to the United States in fourth grade. You know, I, I was in an ELL classroom. And there's like a big thing once you go from the ELL classroom into the regular uh, class. Yes. And for me, I graduated very quickly. School started in August. I think I transferred full time by early October. And in one of those first weeks, the entire fourth grade class at Bahia Vista Elementary School had a spelling bee. And there were three uh, fourth grade teachers and the other two didn't include the ELL students because they're like, oh, these kids probably don't know how to spell. But Ms. McKay didn't even ask me whether I wanted to or not. She entered me into the contest. And lo and behold, I ended up winning the fourth grade spelling bee. And so for me, there's a choice that teachers also have, whether you want to believe that your student is you know different than the other one so you want to protect them or you can believe that they are exactly the same as your other students and you can see the potential in them and so that's what Ms. McKay chose to do and fast forward to freshman year of high school I had the privilege of going to this very fancy high school and uh, I, that I tried my hardest to get kicked out of because I was really good at soccer, so I got an athletic scholarship. And Mr. Henriksen um, did, you know, I was wearing really baggy pants, uh, wore Cortezes and a long gold chain, uh, a lot of cologne, because I wanted to look different uh, than everybody else. And Mr. Henriksen pulled me aside and pretty much told me that I was going to go to Harvard one day. And at that time, I didn't know what Harvard was and where it was. And he just kept on repeating this. Um, I guess he could see that I was good at history or something and because he was a history teacher. And he helped me, uh, I think, form my love for history and eventually I I, my BA is in history. I didn't go to Harvard right away, but I went to UC Berkeley, uh, but eventually I made my way there. And so again, you know, I externally, I present that as somebody that perhaps shouldn't go to Harvard. Um, and he immediately just cut through that and planted the idea that I could do anything. And I yeah. think both of these teachers uh, really knew how to, cut through the BS that was going around and really made me believe in myself. That's great. He saw your resiliency. So the next question, in your work, 
To what degree have you found that U.S.-born students living in poverty share the perspectives of disenfranchisement and the sense of betrayal that our immigrant students may feel when living here is often more like the American lie than the American dream? Do you want to take that one, Simon? I don't think I completely understood the question. Yeah. yeah, I can I can start, but I think it's I think it's picking up on something you said so beautifully, Avira, which is um, you have this um, story you're told as you're immigrating here about what life is like and and what it uh, will be, and and it's presented as the American dream, and then it's it's actually the American lie, and and how do, how do you track that for for disenfranchised students coming from impoverished backgrounds. And I think uh, it's it's such a good question because I think um, class has a lot to do with this. Um, you know, what are people's experiences as they immigrate to this country? I mean, part of the answer is it depends on what kind of money you have, right? Like, do you have a comfortable life as you're settling in? And then it's maybe relative comfort because hardship is still there as a foreigner, as an immigrant. Um, or are you, is, is it uncomfortable, right? And I'm not trying to put it as like two starkly different categories, but like it is, it's true that uh, the class uh, experience of people, uh, meaning the class difference, um, it, it can be brutal. And, and I know so many people, including in my own family, uh, who came to this country with nothing, um, but um, had economic opportunity, had academic opportunity, and were able to find comfort pretty quickly. Uh, and to them, their stories, they would describe them as the American dream, including my, my own parents is how they talk about living here. And I, I think there, there's another complication here, which is even for those of us like myself who were born and raised here, um, we are starting to contest uh, the, the narratives we've been given about American history. And, you know, we, we we're seeing how contentious that is uh, as it's playing out in book bans and, and curriculum arguments and, uh, you know, who can say DEI and where. I mean, it's, it's playing out in all sorts of ugly ways around our country, uh, a lot of it in the classroom. But ultimately, it's, it's coming down to how do we tell our, the story of ourselves? And are we willing to confront, like what we were saying earlier, like the good and the bad? There's a lot that's been great about this country and there's a lot that's not been so great. And so the, the American lie for me also has to do with, you know, I was told growing up that Christopher Columbus was, you know, God's gift to humanity, right? Like that's, that's what I learned in, in elementary school. And as I grew up and I started to study American history, I started to realize actually, and that's, and that's just the, the surface level, right? Like we all know that now. Our kids know that now. Like we have a different kind of conversation, but there are so many kinds of narratives like that, that I find to be pernicious as a parent, right? And I'm not even talking as a historian right now, but as a parent, um, it sets our kids up for mistrust in, in the way that I felt uh, when they're told a certain version of what reality is. And it turns out that you get to the real world and you're like, actually, everybody's been lying to me. And so I, I, I love the question because it's, it's so important. We see what happens to us as, as a people uh, when we're not telling the truth about who we are. Uh, and what life is like, because it, it sets us all up for failure wh wherever we are. So anyway, that's it's. thank you for that question. I really appreciate it. Yes, thank you. We have time for one more question. 
Um, this comes from, I believe, uh, Jennifer. As there's nothing for students of color to fix about their identity, and students of color don't need to work on it, what can teachers do to build allyship amongst the whole class of students without pressing students of color to share their perspectives? Can I, can I say one thing on this that I, I wanted to say when Javier was talking earlier and um, just to build on it? Um, you'd asked him a question about um, the experience and, and how to sort of open up the aperture. And, um, and I remember this, this moment I had with an elementary school librarian who I loved, uh, Miss Evans. And, and I asked her why there weren't any books about sick characters. And she said, um, without meaning to be hurtful, she said, well, they're just not relatable. And, and I found it hurtful, and uh, even though that wasn't our intention. And I've been thinking about it in the years since. And, and part of what I've come to understand is her understanding, her assumption about who is relatable was informing who she thought deserved to be on bookshelves, right? To Javier's point earlier, like everyone deserves to be on bookshelves. But those of us in positions of power, including educators, get to make the choices of who's there. And so I think part of the challenge that I would offer here uh, in response to this question is, how do you shift what we consider to be normative, right? Who gets to be included? And, and that's, that's a real challenge, right? So it's such a hard thing for us. I mean, I have the same challenge, right? Like whiteness is embedded in me too. And so when you ask me what an American looks like, I will describe what most Americans would say, right? Like a white person with blue eyes and blonde hair or whatever. And so shifting what we presume to be normative as educators is really hard, right? Who we consider to be norm, whose story is getting told, which version of that story is coming through. Uh, all of these are, are um, baked into, they're embedded into our systems of education. And so to, to unpack that is, is a really difficult thing to do, but it's, I think it's part of the solution. Mm -hmm. Javier? Brilliant. That, that that's brilliant. <laughs> I mean, yeah, no one can match that. We we have to go on that one. And so, <laughs> with that, gentlemen, we are running out of time, ladies and gentlemen. If I may, um, we want to thank you for joining our webinar today. And as a token of appreciation, uh, Penguin Random House Education is delighted to offer you complimentary copies of the author's books. To claim yours, simply scan the QR code that you see there and complete the form. Please be aware that the copies of the picture book by Dr. Sine are limited to the first 50 individuals. So start clicking away. Additionally, because each registered for this webinar, you will receive a follow-up email that includes details about our new empowerment scholarship. If any of you would like to know more about Alliance credentials or degree programs, you can request by following these two steps, utilize the QR code and submit your request by completing the form on the corresponding page. Before we go, ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank kindly both Simran and Javier for joining me in this webinar. Gentlemen, I truly hope our professional paths cross at least one more time. And to the rest of you out there in the audience, we thank you for joining us and we wish you a wonderful rest of the day. Goodbye. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this EdWeb podcast. If you'd like to receive a CE certificate, you must watch the video recording. Recordings and quizzes can be found in the EdWebinar archives. Please visit home.edweb.net 
slash podcasts for more information.